Have you ever had the experience where someone asks you to give them an honest answer and then they turn on you because they don't like your answer? Maybe the question is, does this outfit make me look big? That's always a very difficult one to deal with. Or maybe the question is, did I just overreact in what I said to that person? Was I unfair to them? Was I unkind? Should I go and apologize? Sometimes we can be asked those kind of questions, but the answers we give are not well received. I once lived with a married couple for a few months before I was married. They were very kind. They were really eager to make me comfortable in their home. So much so that on the first morning, the lady said to me, just tell me what you like to eat for breakfast normally, and I'll get it for you. While you're here with us, we want you to have what you would prefer. She'd asked me what I wanted, so I gave her an honest answer. I'd like uh, Cocoa Pops, please. (laughs) To which she replied, oh, no, I'm certainly not getting those for you. Those are full of sugar. So for the next couple of months, I slogged my way through a few boxes of her much more healthy cereal, which was probably better for me. But she had asked me a question, but she decided my answer was unacceptable. I didn't say what she wanted me to say. And as we turn to the book of Jeremiah this morning, we find a situation a little bit like that. We're turning to Jeremiah chapter 42 and 43, and these chapters are about when God doesn't say what we want Him to say. If you're using a church Bible, turn to page 805, and in the larger print Bibles, 1247. We need a little bit of context before we start reading, because chapter 42 begins, as we'll see in a moment, with a group of people who are on the run. Chapter 40 and 41 gave us the reason why these people are on the run. The Babylonian armies had descended on Judah. They put the city of Jerusalem under siege, and when the city walls were finally breached, the Babylonians had torched the place. They reduced it to rubble and ashes, and they took many of the people away into exile in Babylon. But some of the poorest people in the land were left behind. They were left under the leadership of a man called Gedaliah. The Babylonians put him in charge, and he seemed to be a decent leader. As bad as the circumstances were, there was a little bit of hope. Soon more people began to emerge from the countryside where they'd been hiding. They came to join Gedaliah. One of them was an army commander called Johanan. And very soon others began to come back from neighboring countries where they had scattered to escape from the Babylonians. So a little community began to form in the ruins of Judah. The future didn't look easy for them but it began to seem like there was a future. They could begin to build something good in the ruins, a new people starting a new life. 
But within just a few months, it all fell apart. A man called Ishmael assassinated Gedaliah, and he assassinated quite a few others along with him. He filled an underground cistern with dead bodies. And although Johanan was able to stop Ishmael, the remainder of the group, we were told, were afraid. They were very afraid. Surely, they thought, when the Babylonians found out that Gedaliah had been killed, Gedaliah, who they had left in charge, the Babylonians would surely come and obliterate whoever was left for being so troublesome and disruptive. In just a very short time, the mood of hope changed into fear. Johanan leads the group in the direction of Egypt. It seems to be the only thing to do. It's madness to stay in Judah, surely. Egypt will be a safe place. And so they run. And that's where we pick up this morning at chapter 42, verse 1. And we'll read through to the end of chapter 43. Then all the army officers, including Johanan son of Kareah and Jezaniah son of Hushiah, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please, hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I have heard you, replied Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you have requested. I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us, for we will obey the Lord our God. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. However, if you say we will not stay in this land and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread. Then hear the word of the Lord, you remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there. And the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt. And there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. 
Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so will my wrath be poured out on you when you go down to Egypt. You will be a curse and an object of horror, a curse and an object of reproach. You will never see this place again. Remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this. I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and say, pray to the Lord our God for us. Tell us everything he says and we will do it. For I have told you today, but still you have not obeyed the Lord your God in all he sent me to tell you. So now be sure of this. You will die by the sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to go to settle. When Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah son of Hoshiah and Johanan son of Kareah and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are lying. The Lord has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so that they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. So Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Instead, Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers led away all the remnant of Judah who had come back to live in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been scattered. They also led away all those whom Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had left with Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. The men, the women, the children, and the king's daughters. And they took Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, son of Neriah, along with them. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanes. In Tapanes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, while the Jews are watching, take some large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement of the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd picks his garment clean of lice, so he will pick Egypt clean and depart. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars and will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. This is God's word. And our passage opens with a group of people who are in a frightening, stressful situation. And they are a group of people who seem to be seeking God's will. I say they seem to be seeking God's will because their approach to Jeremiah is a bit of a surprise to us if we've read chapters 40 and 41. Because the most notable thing about those chapters is that they apparently made no inquiries with Jeremiah. 
all through those days of fresh hope, they quickly descended into a bloodbath, as Ishmael did his best to hack them all to pieces. All through that, Jeremiah had been with them, but he appears to have been completely ignored. Even though by this stage, he was an internationally known messenger of God, whose messages from God had proved reliable. It seems this group of people preferred to make a new start without God's word. So they ignored God's prophet. But now, having already decided to go to Egypt, as they're heading as fast as they can down the road to Egypt, they decide to approach Jeremiah. And apparently, they want to know God's will. Look again at chapter 42, verse 1. Then all the army officers, including Johanan, son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, son of Hushiah, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please, hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. So these people are not just saying, pray for us, please. They're saying, we want God's guidance. We want him to direct us. And when Jeremiah agrees to give them direction, they're enthusiastic. Look at verse 5. They said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us for we will obey the Lord our God. They could hardly make their commitment any stronger. And probably they're sincere. They do want God to guide them. After all, it is a desperate situation they're in. But, as we listen to them here, we already know they've decided staying in Judah is not an option. They're already on the road to Egypt. So they want God's guidance, but even before they speak to Jeremiah, they've ruled out one of the ways God might guide them. It's a bit like the lady who asked me what I wanted for breakfast. In her own mind, she had already narrowed down the options, even before she heard my answer. I'll get him whatever he wants, so long as it doesn't have sugar in it. Do you think we might ever be like that ourselves with God? I'll do whatever his word asks of me, so long as he doesn't ask this or this of me. I'll seek his guidance for the future of this relationship I'm in with a non-Christian because I am committed to doing God's will, so long as his will doesn't involve me ending the relationship. I'll seek God's guidance for how to handle this messy situation at work so long as his will doesn't involve me making the kind of honest confrontation that could cost me my job. I'll seek God's guidance about caring for my elderly parents, 
so long as his will doesn't involve any really significant sacrifice on my part. Have you ever asked God to show you what to do sincerely, except you did have a little list in your head of one or two things you're definitely not going to do? Because those things would be just too much. And we need to be clear here as we talk about this, I'm not speaking about asking God for direct guidance to come out of the sky. I'm thinking of the kind of guidance that comes from searching God's written word to find his will as it is revealed in Scripture. Seeking scriptural principles we can apply to our lives. Principles like love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. We'll hear more about that one this evening. Principles like do not covet your neighbor's wife or anything else that your neighbor has. Principles like be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The Bible gives hundreds of general commands that actually give pretty specific guidance for our lives. That's what I mean by seeking God's will. And maybe as you and I consider that, maybe all of us would have to say, yes, there have been times when I've done that And at the same time, I've set a few limits on how I will allow God to guide me. When you and I do that, very often we find God has not ruled out the things we've ruled out. In fact, very often the way ahead that we've already turned away from is exactly the way God tells us to go. When you and I come to God with the options already narrowed down in our minds, then we're very likely to find his word is a challenging word. That was the case for this little group on their way down to Egypt. Look at verse 7. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the army officers who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in this land, that's Judah, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you. And will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore your land. God says, I know what you're scared about. The king of Babylon is a scary man. I know staying in Judah is the scary choice. But in your case, the scary choice will lead to safety. When God says in verse 10, I have relented concerning the disaster I have inflicted on you, the sense of that is not, I've decided I made a mistake when I brought judgment on Judah through the Babylonian armies. No, the point is, I have now expanded my wrath and judgment. I have poured it out. 
I'm not wrathful anymore. My attitude to you people is not one of judgment. I want to build you up, not tear you down. I want to plant you, not to uproot you. But you have a choice to make. Notice how verse 10 begins with the word if. If these people will trust him enough to do the scary thing, the thing they have mentally ruled out even before they inquired of God, if they will turn around and settle in Judah, the scary choice will prove to be the best choice. Now, God is not promising it will be easy for them, but in verse 11, he says, I am with you and will save you and deliver you. It's the same promise God made to Jeremiah way back in chapter 1, decades before this point. God said to Jeremiah when he was just a young man, a very young man, stand up and say to them whatever I command you. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you. Obedience has not been easy for Jeremiah. People have fought against him. They even left him to sink in a muddy cistern. But again and again, God has shown Jeremiah he is with him. God has rescued him. For Jeremiah, obeying God's word was scary, but it proved to be the best choice. When you meet Jeremiah in heaven, ask him if he regrets obeying God's word. Ask any Christian who's made a hard choice to obey God. As hard as it seemed at the time, as they look back, they will tell you it was truly the best choice they could have made. Because it led them in the end to safety. Through that hard choice, God built them up. He showed them new depths of his love and his compassion. So when God's word challenges you and me, when it tells us, what we don't want to hear. When it seems scary to obey it, let's trust God's wisdom. Let's trust that obedience will lead us to blessing because he does know best. And realize this as well. When God's word does challenge us, when it calls us to do something that seems just too scary for us, the safe choice will lead to disaster. For this little group of Judeans, running to Egypt is the safe choice. It's so obvious that's what they should do. And God knows what's going on in their minds. Look at verse 13. However, if you say we will not stay in this land and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say no, we will go and live in Egypt where we will not see war or hear the trumpet, or be hungry for bread. You can see there, by their calculations, Egypt is the safe place. Egypt must have seemed to them like a haven of tranquility. The Babylonians have not invaded Egypt. There hasn't been war trumpets sounding down there. Egyptian cities have not been put under siege. 
They haven't been burnt down. Their crops haven't been devastated by hordes of foreign soldiers. Surely Egypt is the place of happiness and prosperity. And again, you and I can think in very similar ways. If I hold on to this sin, things will stay comfortable in my life. Or if I go in this direction, even though it's disobedient, if I ignore what God's Word is telling me to do, I'll find satisfaction that way. I'll avoid missing out. I'll find the fulfillment I've been looking for. But it doesn't work that way. God says to these Judeans, Egypt might seem like the safe choice for you. It might seem like the place where you'll find peace, where you'll have your needs met, but it's not. Look at the end of verse 15. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt. And there you will die. Egypt looked safe, but it would turn out to be deadly. And we need to pause here and make sure we don't misunderstand the point. Because we're not saying, if you want to follow God, you must always do what you don't want to do. And you can never do what you want to do. Sometimes we can get that idea into our heads. If I enjoy something, it must be wrong. If I hate something, well, it must be what God wants me to do. That's silly. If you and I are seeking to follow God, probably a good deal of the time, the things we want to do will be good and they will be honoring to God and we should go ahead and do them. Most of the time, God's word might actually confirm the path we're on. But what this passage is dealing with is the times when God's word challenges our path. The choice that feels scary to us is actually in line with God's word. And the choice that feels safe is actually defying God's word. Those are the times when you and I have to steady ourselves and trust God and do what he says. Unfortunately, that is not what Jeremiah's companions do. Even before he finishes saying all this to them, he can tell already by their body language they're rejecting God's message. Maybe it was more than just body language that gave away their reaction. Maybe these people were heckling him. We're not told. In any case, when he finishes the message, they make their position totally clear. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah had finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah son of Hoshiah and Johanan son of Kareah, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, You must not go to Egypt and settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so that they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. 
Verse 2 calls them arrogant men. And their arrogance is shown in the way they put their own wisdom above God's. But they don't come right out and say, we think we know better than God and we're going to defy God. No, they tell Jeremiah, God would never say this kind of thing. This is not truly God's word. It's a very convenient way to avoid obeying God while still claiming to be the people of God. See, they're calling him our God. This is an approach that many people take today. If the Bible says something you don't want it to say, just call the Bible's trustworthiness into question. That way you can still claim you're a Christian while doing whatever you like. God's word can never actually challenge you. That's what many people have done on the issue of uh, sexuality, for example. The prevailing view on sexuality has changed dramatically in recent years. In our society, it is now considered immoral to say that certain sexual behaviors are immoral. And in the face of that, plenty of church leaders are now saying, well, we've gone back to Scripture, and you know what? Those passages that seem to be perfectly clear for thousands of years, we've decided they're not really clear at all. They don't actually mean what we all thought they meant just 15 years ago. Or some people will be even more direct and say, we should take those bits right out of the Bible because God would never say stuff like that. He's a God of love. He would never dream of condemning anyone's lifestyle. It's a very convenient way to go on calling yourself a Christian while actually putting yourself in authority over the Bible. It's what these arrogant men are doing here in our passage. When they first asked Jeremiah to pray to God for them and deliver God's word to them, they had no doubts then about Jeremiah's trustworthiness. They were almost over the top in their promises to obey. Everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us, whether it is favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God. But now... Jeremiah has told them what they don't want to hear, and they say he's lying. And they go on to accuse Baruch the scribe of exerting some kind of pressure on Jeremiah to get them all captured by the Babylonians back in Judah. We've met Baruch before. It seems he began working just occasionally for Jeremiah, helping him with some legal documents and compiling Jeremiah's sermons onto a scroll. But by this stage, Jeremiah is an old man, and it seems Baruch has become more of a permanent assistant or an attendant to Jeremiah. But the charge they're making against Baruch is very strange. It's really hard to see what Baruch could possibly gain by getting them all killed. Nor is it plausible to believe Jeremiah would change God's message just because Baruch asked him to. The reality is, Johanan and the others are looking for reasons not to obey God's word. 
any reason will do at this point, no matter how contrived or implausible it might be. Philip Ryken gets to the heart of this when he says about these men, they were only willing to follow God if he was going in their direction. They didn't start inquiring into God's will until they were already halfway to Egypt. What they wanted was for God to put his rubber stamp on their plans. And when he didn't do that, they refused to accept his challenging word. The trouble is, a God who never disagrees with us is no God at all. One of the strong evidences that the Bible has a divine source is that the Bible so often redirects you and me. That is what we would expect if we were dealing with a book full of greater, higher wisdom. But Johannan and the others don't want to consider that. They've come up with excuses to discount Jeremiah's message, and they're going to go ahead and do what they always intended to do. But it doesn't matter what clever arguments we come up with, whatever clever arguments they come up with to justify disobeying God's word, time will always prove to them and to us that disobedience is never progress. It's often thought of as progress, moving on, leaving outdated ideas behind. That's what Johannan and his friends think. We've done the starting over in Judah thing. We tried it. It didn't work. Now we're moving on to Egypt. That's what the future is for us. They forced Jeremiah and Baruch to go with them. Maybe they think Jeremiah will be a lucky charm. Maybe the Lord will bless them just because they have Jeremiah. In any case, they carry on with the journey they had already started. And verse 7 of chapter 43 says, So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Tapanes. If you asked any Israelite, what is the most significant event in your people's history? They would say, the Exodus. We were in terrible slavery and God delivered us. He freed us from the most horrible oppression in that place. And the place he delivered them from was Egypt. Under the leadership of Moses, he brought them out about 850 years before this point. So there's something hugely symbolic here about these Israelites going back to the place of their greatest bondage and slavery. Going back to Egypt and thinking they're somehow making progress. When in fact, in their disobedience, they're actually traveling backwards. And it's not just symbolic here. In the final verses of this passage, God gives Jeremiah another message for these refugees from Judah. God says, you ran down here to escape the Babylonians, but let me tell you, they're coming down here as well. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to Egypt what he already did to Judah. 
You're going to experience it all over again. The Egyptian temples are going to be burnt down, just like the one in Jerusalem. The Babylonian conquest of Judah is over at this point. It's done. God's judgment has already fallen on that place. If Johanan and his friends had stayed there, they wouldn't have experienced judgment a second time. But in their disobedience, they have gone where God told them not to, and they will have to face his judgment. And running from a scary situation to what they thought was the safe situation, these Judeans have actually run right into danger. They thought they were moving forward, but they haven't made any progress at all. Disobedience is always like that. It's never worth it. It never makes things better for us or for anybody else. And so when God doesn't say what you and I want him to say, we trust him anyway. As scary as it might be, we do what he says. That is real progress. When you and I mature into men and women who trust God's wisdom more than we trust our own. So let's ask God to help us develop that maturity. And we can ask him for help as we sing our next song together. This is a prayer that Jesus, our good shepherd, will lead us and will help us in our weakness. Let's sing it as a prayer to him. Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end.